Our God is a missionary God, and we are His missionary people. You're listening to The Scent Life, the official podcast of the Center for Great Commission Studies at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Happy New Year. Welcome back to The Scent Life for our second season. Thank you for those of you who tuned in our first season. We had a lot of fun. Uh, We had interviews uh, with uh, Pastor David Platt about uh, the election. We had interviews with uh, uh, Pastor J.D. Greer about not wasting our life. We talked about missions history and missions theology. We interviewed some students. We had a great a great first season. I want to thank you for uh, jumping back with us this year. Uh, Dr. Matthias and myself just welcome you into a second season of The Scent Life. And as we start 2021, we thought it would be great uh, just to introduce you to one of our heroes around Southeastern. Dr. George Braswell uh, is with us today. And Dr. Braswell uh, was a mission a Southern Baptist missionary uh, to Iran, uh, served there for many years, and uh, he also came to Southeastern and he taught uh, missions here for nearly three decades. He's currently professor of emeritus of missions and world religions, and so we're just happy to have him with us today. We thought it'd be great to kick off 2021 with a conversation about the importance of missions and what it's like to shape your life and your uh, your priorities around God's mission. And so we want to welcome Dr. George Braswell into the Scent Life Studios as we talk about uh, him, his mission, uh, and what all God has done through him in his life. Dr. Braswell, thanks for being with us. I'm so, I so appreciate you. You've always been a real... Uh, a real friend to me and a hero. Uh, your book, To Ride a Magic Carpet, meant a whole lot to me and to my family when we served overseas as we were working with Muslims. And so just to watch your courage and your bravery, uh, you took you three children overseas. Can you talk to us just a little bit um, about how how did God call you to the mission field? I mean, you've, you were a pastor in Cullowee and then God called you accidentally even to the mission field. Can you talk to us about your call to missions and how God just gripped your heart? I think the call really began to be implanted in us, really in New Haven, Connecticut, at Yale Divinity School. Uh, I had good professors there that taught Baptist history, Baptist mission. I studied under Dr. Kenneth Scott Latterett, okay. the great historian, Baptist historian of missions. And uh, he's got, what, eight volumes of right. mission history around the world. Uh, Dr. Roland Bainton taught me, uh, you know, the great Martin Luther, you know, Reformation. Uh, so I, I had a tremendous faculty. They laid the seeds, I think, at Yale Divinity School. Uh, not that, uh, you know, I hadn't been encouraged by a home church, but I think I began to read more. Joanne and I began to pray more. We thought about maybe medical missions. Uh, my background in sciences was very weak, of course. But those were things we were exploring. I think curiosity and exploration in, a, in the human spirit open up to the Holy Spirit enables you to really uh, be in more in touch with your, the calling that may come to you in the future. So, yeah, the seeds were laid with Margaret, Miss Margaret Lips had taught me Sunday school okay. about the Magi. The wise men only came from Mesopotamia, Iran. And then uh, I think Yale Divinity School began to put that in court. Put it together. Okay. So then you ended up from Yale, uh, came back to North Carolina, 
and as a pastor. Tell us about that journey. How does, how does a guy get from New Haven, Connecticut back to North Carolina as a pastor? Uh, I'm sure back in the 60s, wasn't the easiest transfer to come back. It was not easy. We went to Yale Divinity School in 1958 from Wake Forest College University. And of course, Yale had a lot of medical. We were only four Southern Baptists in the whole student body at Yale Divinity wow. School. So a lot of Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Roman Catholics, and uh, they were the years of uh, segregation and the beginnings of integration. I heard Dr. Martin Luther King preaching Battelle Chapel right? at New Haven oh, wow. at Yale. Uh, but the answer to the question is, Methodists and Baptists, we few Baptists, having gone north to study, to be honest with you, would find it difficult to come back to South because of segregation. They, you know, you look at Southerners looking at the North, and you've been up there training, meant way a little bit of suspicion about you. So it took me some time to locate a pastorate. We felt called to the pastorate. And so through a miracle of many happenings, I got called in this beautiful mountainous view of a colorway, Western Carolina Little College at that time, with a thousand students, the Colorway Baptist Church right on campus, wow. dynamic. And so that got us back to the South. And I had no intention, loved it. You know, you fall in love with Mount. In fact, I married a mountaineer. She's from Asheville area. So I was back home within 30 miles of her home. Uh, But uh, who would ever want to leave Cullowee with the mountains, the Cherokee Indian Reservation nearby, the Tuckasee River coming through, uh, the valleys? You know, nobody, you'd stay for a lifetime in Cullowee. But we felt the calling. I've already been, right. mentioned that earlier. And so uh, nothing's going to stand in the way. Sure. So you end up at Ridgecrest and you go, you take, you as the pastor of Cullowee, uh, you took your youth to, um, to Ridgecrest, hoping that God would call maybe one of them to the mission field. And all of a sudden, you and Miss Joanne, you end up walking down the aisle. What happened? What happened was, I had a, they, they couldn't believe we'd get 25 or 30 young people on Sunday nights in youth group right. in those days. And so I encouraged missions and we'd go to Ridgecrest and rent a house. The parents would raise vegetables in the garden to come over farm mission meat to cook for. Right. I, we'd go to, Dr. Baker James Carlin was yep. the director of the farm mission board in those days, great evangelistic preacher. Dr. Carlin went to small churches and large churches all across the convention. And so he would preach. I said, boy, one of those young people, they're going to walk that aisle. They're going to really walk that aisle. Well, lo and behold, we begin to meet missionaries at Farm Mission Week, talking to people from Indonesia. The short of it is, beginning of my fourth year and fifth years at Colorway Baptist Church, we begin to invite missionaries to come in and preach revivals. And I thought, boy, I'm not sure Joanne and I will ever respond to that. We want people to hear it. And lo and behold, uh, Frank Wells came from Indonesia, missionary. Sam James came from, uh, and they would all say, you got to come to Indonesia. Uh, you got to come to Vietnam. Uh, Jesse Fletcher, who was with the Farm Mission Board, wrote books on missions, sure. called us one day and said, uh, I'm going to fly my, he flew up his ball plane. I'm going to fly from Richmond to Asheville. Okay. Can you meet us at the airport? And so Joanne and I got in the car and met Jesse Fletcher. And he said, he said, George and Joanne, there's an opening in Beirut, Lebanon. Wow. If you can go over there and be the student uh, minister, 
to the Arab students at the American University of Beirut, right on the beautiful Mediterranean Sea. I said, oh boy, that sounds wonderful. God calls us there, we can surely go. Sure. And lo and behold, we get a call and said, well, the Foreign Mission Board has been thinking about sending a missionary to Iran. We've never sent a missionary to Iran. Would you and Joanne be willing to consider that, pray about it? I said, well, is anybody going to help us? Well, the Holy Spirit's going to help you. And so that laid the seeds. We, we were urged to go to Nigeria, Indonesia, uh, Beirut, uh, Lebanon, were openings. Nobody had ever been to Iran. So after much prayer, searching, conversations, we gave our lives to go to Iran. So I'm always mesmerized when we get to sit together and share stories. I always learn so much and so appreciative of you and Miss Joanne. Tell us a little bit more. So you, both of you responded to the call to missions, uh, but it's a little, it was a little different back then in terms of the process with the Foreign Mission Board than it is today. So talk to us a little bit about that process of communication and how you uh, were able to be appointed as missionaries with the Foreign Mission Board. Well, you know, we went through the, pro the process was rigorous in those days too, in the late 60s, you know, mid to late 60s. As I said earlier, um, that uh, first of all, they, uh, we were disappointed because they said you got to go, you know, to another for further training. I'd been four years of college, three years of seminary divinity school, and uh, you know we were anxious to get ready. We felt the Holy Spirit was leading us to go on, and so the farmers board wrote back and said, "Let's proceed." So that led us to go through the process, and uh, I think by the time we got to Iran, we went in our suitcases. I mean, as I said, nobody's on the ground to meet us. We were left, in a sense, on our own. There's no infrastructure to receive us. And with the pressure to have 90 days, that's only three months, to work out, to get a work and residence permit with the Iranian government required. You can't just be there. Uh, that was encouraging for us to pray more, to involve more in trying to understand. Iran is 98% Shiite Muslim. 98% of the population is Shiites, Muslims. That doesn't leave much, right? right. And so uh, I found out that the dean of the Muslim seminary had 600 students in it, Muslim preachers to be, and also a 35-member faculty, all Muslims in turbans and robes. Someone said, go over and meet the dean. And I said, all right. I prayed about it, went over there. There's a long line of Ayatollahs type sitting in a row, about 20 of those, to his desk. He knew I was coming, and I walked in, and he saw this American white face at the door. He motioned me to come down. I didn't want to get a, you know, a revolution on my hands or disturb the order. And so uh, I went down and, and sat on the front seat. He got the young Ayatollah to move. I sat on the front seat. We began to talk. He served me about six cups of hot tea. In those days, you sip the tea, you know, and melt the sugar cube in your mouth. I was drinking so much hot tea, and we were talking and talking and talking, and uh, I had not learned the word for restroom. <laughs> and so uh, I was getting a little bit worried, and I was praying a little bit harder. And finally he says, well, you know, again, well, what, what were your schools you went to? And I told him, Wake Forest, never heard of it. I went to Yale Divinity School, never. Well, he said, is that like Harvard? I said, yes. I said, it's better than Harvard. He said, well, I tell you what, let's talk further, and you can teach maybe, give you an appointment on the faculty to teach English and world religions. Wow. I said, he said, but you can't teach Islam. You can teach Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity. You can't teach Islam. Well, that's fair enough. Right. Right. Well, this American pale face on right. the faculty of all these Iranian professors, you know, what is he going to tell us about Islam? That's right. That's right. 
So that was the beginning. So they got me a work permit. Okay. And I taught there on and off for four, four to five years. So tell us a little bit more about, about those kind of next few years where, I mean, challenges maybe that you guys faced or highlights, kind of God-sized things that you might have seen while you served over in Iran? Well, being a professor and an American, Americans were great, greatly appreciated in those days. They loved Americans. Iranians loved Americans. We never had an unfortunate moment in our life in five years with Iranian society and culture. But I was teaching Muslim preachers, and they had mosques. They were pastors' types of mosques in Tehran and Isfahan and Shiraz all across the country. And they would invite me to their services. And I would sit and listen to all these Muslim sermons and doing the holy seasons, and they would cry and plead sometimes to Allah. And so that got me introduced deeply into it. Most often, I'd be invited in after the Muslim prayer service to come to the house of the preach, Muslim preacher and sit on the floor and eat an Iranian you know, chili kebab. Right, right. And then we talked for two hours. Mm. And they'd say, well, Dr. Brazville, they would say, uh, tell us about your Jesus. Mm. I said, well, I know in the Quran you have Jesus mentioned 90 times, Isa mentioned 90 times. And that would give me the opportunity Say, well, you asked me, I'm going to tell you. Right. I'll tell them about Jesus Christ right there. And so that opened up all kinds of possibilities for me. That position at the Muslim seminary got me a work permit, a residence permit, entree into the life of Iranian people, both men and women meetings, and uh, got me a chance to lay up infrastructure for later development. That's great. So now you were in Iran, though, for most people watching, uh, only know Iran after the Islamic Revolution. You were there before the Islamic Revolution, but you were there kind of in a run-up. So it was kind of a, if I remember reading in your book, there were some kind of tension points uh, in your time in Iran. Can you talk to us about uh, how you navigated some of that? And mostly, uh, talk to us about some of the, the people that you actually, because you actually saw a couple people come to faith in Christ during that time. And there were very few Christians in Iran at that time. Very few Christians. Oh especially evangelical Christians. Right. The Armenian Christians were there, Assyrian uh, Christians, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, you know, sectarianism. But no, no real evangelicals, very many. Right. And so uh, this young man came down from the Caspian Sea near the Russian border in Iran, came down and found a job teaching English to foreigners. Foreigners were beginning to go in Iran because of the oil development. Shah of Iran was in power. And uh, I met him. And in the book, I think second chapter, I mentioned, uh, called him Cyrus. And uh, he converted to Jesus Christ. Wow. He's teaching English to several of us missionaries. His father was a communist, Iranian communist, mm. in the, back up in the Catherine Sea area. His mother was a devout Muslim lady. Wow. So his father didn't practice Islam. His mother was yeah. devout. She cried every time he left home because she said, you need to be here and go to the mosque with me. Okay. Cyrus accepted Jesus Christ wow. as his Lord and Savior. And then he was able to come to the States to study at Warren Wilson College. And uh, so that was, that's one illustration of what could be done slowly, of course, often silently. But that was the culture we lived in. And today, Iran is, um, I mean, it's significant. Jesus is doing a whole lot of stuff inside of Iran. But uh, at that time, it was really slow. But you left Iran. You came back to... Uh, came back to Southeastern, um, but uh, before you could come study at Southeastern, uh, we required you to have a PhD. 
So you had to earn a PhD. Uh, and so we have a lot of students here who think that they have to work really hard and be really creative about earning their degree. Talk to us about how you earned your degrees in order to make it so you could come back here as a professor. Well, uh, the short story, if it can be short, is we came back from Iran on a furlough, intending to go back after a furlough. We called it furlough in those days. I had about a year. I started studying at, uh, MA at, in cultural anthropology at Chapel Hill, yeah. University of North Carolina. I got that degree, but Southeastern offered the doctor ministry degree for the first time, the first doctoral program at Southeastern in 72, 73. They didn't have a PhD program at that time. Okay. And so uh, the professor of missions here, Dr. Copeland, I came over and talked to him. He said, I think you ought to get the doctor ministry. It'll give you more validity to go back to Iran and you'll be, have a doctor's degree at least and be on the faculty, a Muslim seminary. And so I got the master's in cultural anthropology came over here, and that's when Sam James also, who had preached <laughs> revivals in my church, was in, he was on furlough from Vietnam, and he was in the same graduating class of Dr. Ministry. That's funny. You know, you can't, you can't dream up these things, right? And so uh, Sam went back to Vietnam. Joanne and I went back to Iran with a Dr. Ministry degree. I did not apply for a job here. We went back to spend another four-year term. I got a surprise call. We went back in August of 73. I got a surprise call in February of 74, was it? From Dr. Binkley, Binkley Chapel, named after Dr. <laughs> Binkley, President Binkley. He said, Mr. Braswell, uh, you were here on, in the D-Men program. I said, I, yeah, you and I talked some during that year. He said, well, we have a position open in missions, and I'd like to present your name to the Board of Trustees if you and Ms. Braswell will pray about it and see, be affirmed by it. I'm scratching my head. Mm. I said, wait, 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 wait a minute. We, we didn't apply for this job. How did they, they get my name? So that's the short of it. We prayed. We talked to Dr. Huey, who was the area secretary from the Farm Mission Board. And he said, you know, Dr. Huey said, as much as we want you to stay in Iran, he said, think about this. He called me George. Think about this, George. Think about if you, have, if you feel, led, feel led to come back, think about the students' lives you can touch, maybe for generations. And so that's one reason we came, we came back. But you're short, uh, I came back without a PhD. Right. And Southeastern Seminary said, if you want tenure, in those days they get, you could get tenure after three years, if you proved yourself. Sure. Right. Sure. And now I come back with the four children now. Little Becky was born in Tehran. So I got four kids, a wife, come back over here. I'm studying full time in Chapel Hill to get a PhD. Right. Every, we didn't have classes on Mondays. Uh -huh. I'd travel to Chapel Hill every Monday to PhD seminars, come back and teach a full load. I'm not bragging, I'm just saying, sure. they said you, if you want tenure, you gotta do it. Right. Right. So lo and behold, in a year and a half, I got the PhD. So Dr. Braswell, I don't know if you know this, but when I first came here to study for my Masters of Divinity, my first missions class was with you. And, uh, uh, you've spent a long time in the classroom influencing and impacting people to think about the nations. But, but you also developed another course outside of the Intro to Missions and some of the other classes, a, a practicum in world religions. And so tell us a little bit about, uh, we still offer the class, but why did you create that course? What were you hoping to impart to the students through that? When we came back from Iran and joined the faculty in 1974, America was beginning to experience religious pluralism. 
when we were called as missionaries, we usually thought Hindus were over there in India, Buddhists were in Asia, Japan, Muslims in the Middle East. When we came back in 74, American society was changing. Hindus were coming here studying, sending their missionaries, building temples. Buddhists are doing the same thing. Muslims are doing the same thing with the mosque. So uh, in 1979, I got a grant from the Association of Theological Schools to develop a class reaching American culture and helping churches to understand what's going on in our culture, American culture, I mean, religious pluralism. You see, when I was at Yale Divinity School, you know the popular book we read on comparative religions, world religions, Will Herberg's Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. Wow. That was, in, that was the 1950s and 60s, see? So when I came here, I said, boy, if the church is going to awaken to the world about us over there and here, so I, I got this practical world religions, and the faculty voted in in 1980. Yeah, right. And every summer until I retired, I took a class to Washington, D.C., or Atlanta, Georgia, or the, then the Research Triangle area began to develop. Hindus were building a $4 million temples and Buddhists and uh, Muslims. And so that's what happened there. It went, uh, it went back to uh, 1980. So hundreds of students went through that, and uh, hopefully it was helpful to them to understand not only the culture of the people and the religions, and help their churches to understand and reach out to their religious neighbors. Yeah, we still offer that class. We do over spring break now, um, not over the summer, so it's a spring break class every right. spring break. Dr. Ann Grenham teaches uh, teaches that class for yeah, us. You know, I, I mentored Dr. Grenham in his PhD. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mentored yeah. him. And, uh, you have a long said, shadow, a long legacy. He said he would continue the class. I said I'm happy. That's good. I'm happy. Hey, talk to me just a minute about it. I've heard you tell the story about the fact that when you were a professor at Southeastern, it wasn't exactly known as the Great Commission Seminary. Uh, that, um, that um, well, why don't you tell us, what was it like to be the missions professor at Southeastern Seminary when you first came back in the 70s? It wasn't like it is today. Right. Well, we didn't even teach a class in evangelism when I came. Uh, so... Finally, Dr. Delis Miles was invited to come from uh, Midwestern Seminary, who wrote many books on evangelism, Dr. Miles did. And uh, he and I would go to the faculty in those days and say, why don't we require courses on a basic evangelism and a basic missions course, Christian missions course? Well, we didn't get it done. Uh, nobody so, would vote it in. No, we couldn't vote it in. Wow. Not as a requirement. Right. Wow. Finally, we got a, you know, extra credit. So, okay. but, uh, so we, we were fighting a battle about getting this in the curriculum. So you're talking about seminary being a great commission. Of course, we have sent out many missionaries here right. from the time it was founded in, what, 51? Right. Right. First graduating class was in 54 here at Southeastern. So we have many missionaries have gone out. But it was, it was a struggle to get the curriculum involved in, the, in really teaching Christian missions. So, but you told me a story one time about the first time that you were in a faculty meeting and they actually voted in. Uh, missions and evangelism is part of the curriculum. How'd that make you feel, knowing that you've been here those many years? I think when you've invested your life, as I did, not only as a student, but as a pastor, and then as a, we said, a foreign missionary, international missionary, uh, I think and it, it gives you insights, not that you're superior in your thinking, but it gives you insights of experience to say, you know, this is the kind of world we live in. If we're going to bring the local churches in on what's happening all around them, not only abroad, but in their own communities, we've got to emphasize missions. 
and not only missions, but we got to emphasize who are our religious neighbors. Mm. See, most I think most churches do not understand in my lifetime here that uh, that the Buddhist temple here, four million dollar temple, right. but the Zen Buddhists out there in Pittsburgh, right. uh, the Muslims all we got nine mosques already in in, in Raleigh of uh, right. precincts. We got the multi-million dollar Hindu temples. All that's right here within, what, 25 miles of this campus. And think about the life of the churches, how they need to be brought into this. So we need to go over there. You know, it's interesting to me, on every light post on this campus, what, what is it? It's go, go, go. And that's what was needed. So the practicum in, in, in world religions was part of that whole missiological approach to try to get pastors, students, churches involved in the real world of missions. Mm. So as Scott said earlier that you you cast a long shadow here in, in the best sense of the word of just your investment and your heart for the Lord, your heart for the nations. So what is your hope for us as faculty moving forward for Southern Baptist churches and really for our students, uh, those that might be watching in the, in the years to come, what is your kind of your heartbeat and your hope for us? Well, I think in my, in, a, in my experience as going as a missionary, uh, I guess you say, uh, don't ever give up. Uh, take the world seriously, become educated, talk to missionaries who have been over there, maybe back home, maybe going back. Uh, open yourself to all possibilities. That would be my first thing. Second thing I would say is this. The world has changed. I'm 83 years old now. The world has changed dramatically since I was in Iran, since uh, I've, I've been a professor even. And uh, we need to go there, but also we need to see that we need to be here. And so my counsel is that I think mi missions is a very basis of biblical studies, of theological studies, of course of missiological studies, and of historical studies. So I'm happy to see Southeastern now moving more deeply into this kind of worldview and this kind of preparation of pastors and, uh, and missionaries to go around the world. So let me so, um, we kind of loop back just a little bit in your story. Um, you mentioned when you were in Yale that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King came and spoke and you heard him. I think you said that John F. Kennedy was there, that you heard yeah. uh, Kennedy oh. speak. Um, People would never believe this, but... We went to Yale Divinity School and had our first child the second year. And we lived in a house with a Roman Catholic, Irish Roman Catholic couple. And uh, that was in 1959-60 when JFK was running against Richard Nixon for the presidency right. in 1960. So the, the Roman Catholic couple, we were the only Baptist uh, Protestant couple on the whole street of Italian Roman Catholics, Irish Roman Catholics. And these were Irish Roman Catholics. And so they babysat for a little, uh, little Margaret Ann, our firstborn, born in, in there. And they would say, well, the election is coming up. Uh, you've got to vote for uh, Robert F. Kennedy. I mean, JFK, JFK. Well, I said, Mrs. O'Brien, O'Brien. I said, Mrs. O'Brien. I said, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're Baptists here from the South. I mean, we've got to weigh this thing heavily. Well, we went. In those days, Richard Nixon came in his convertible, downtown New Haven, Connecticut, campaigning. And Joy and I went down and listened to Richard Nixon in his convertible in those days. Wow. Now, I'm not 100 years old, so don't put me back that far. <laughs> but, but then JFK came. John F. Kennedy came and did the same thing out of open convertible at a different time. And so the O'Brien said, look, 
the polling place is down the street, and uh, we'll be happy to take you down there to vote for a certain person. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, that, that was the beginning of ecumenical. Uh, right. It was interesting. I, I'll tell you this one. Mrs. O'Brien loved the Boston Red Sox. Yeah, okay. They were up in Boston. Sure. We were in New Haven, Connecticut. And so, uh, I, and I played high school and I played baseball at Wake Forest College, third base. Okay. So I was, you know, interested in baseball. So Mrs. O'Brien would say, come upstairs to black and white television. Come upstairs and watch the Red Sox play the Yankees. And we'd pull for Ted Williams and the Red Sox. And then she, about seventh inning stretch, she'd say, uh, George, she'd say, go in the basement because Tom, her husband, was down there. I knew, I knew exactly what he was doing. He was drinking beer. <laughs> And she knew that. Yeah. You may want to cut this out. She knew that. <laughs> so I said, Ms. Brown, you want me to go down to the basement and tell you, Mr. Tom to stop drinking beer? I mean, I'll tell him about other things. <laughs> well, He's a grown man. Huh? Yeah, that's right. But th this was the environment we grew right, up in. Right, right. In New Haven, Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Strange days, huh? Yeah. Different. You know, strange days, and t of course, people won't believe this. But I do have a Billy Graham story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd love you to hear, hear it. That sure. One? Yeah. I'd love to hear it. Well, at Ridgecrest, in this four-month period, first time, you know, they've ever had an extended all farm missionaries come and be there four years, four, four months. A hundred adults and probably 400 children. Yeah. We, had, we had three at that time. So uh, from 7 o'clock until 9 o'clock at night, Monday through Friday, we went to the cafeteria all together. We lived in dormitories. Right. No, no apartments in dorm rooms. Kids had the tricycles running up and down the roadways or highways, hallways. And so every morning we had to serve each other at the cafeteria. Okay. It was so rigid, really. And most of us have been free-wheeling pastors, you know, coming from <laughs> Southwestern Seminary and all this. So uh, after a while, and, and they kept us so long at nights, they showed us films, we got the classes, took first aid, all this was some of the good. But my good friend going to Indonesia, he and his wife, Bill and Virginia Haley. Bill and I became close. And so one, one week we said, we're going to skip class. So Bill Haley and I told our wives, I told Joanne, he told Virginia, we're not going to be at breakfast next morning, and we're going to go and play golf at Black Mountain. And so don't tell anybody, we said. Because Dr. David Locker was the director of the whole thing. He'd been a missionary to Africa. And you're not supposed to miss class. The short of it is, we got over there that morning, and we paid a little green fee at Black Mountain Golf Course, and uh, got ready to tee off on the first tee. We felt good, man. We didn't mind missing those uh, <laughs> classes. We knew we were delinquents, and uh, out walks this gentleman and says, uh, can I say something to you? We said, yes, uh, before we tee off. And he said, uh, oh, well, would you like to be the uh, guest of uh, Billy Graham? Well, here are two young missionaries <laughs> skipping class. And so the short of that is, we said, by all means. So out walks Billy Graham. His associate hands us back a little green fee, I think $3 wow. to pay, whatever it was. He paid away. Wow. Okay. He played nine holes of golf with us. We talked all the time. He found out Bill was going to Indonesia. Uh, we were going to be missionaries to Iran. And then at the ninth green, he said, I've got to leave. I'm going on a crusade. He said, would you mind us having a prayer? Wow. And Billy Graham prayed. So the short of that story is we got back that night sheepishly. Mm. Our wives said, well, there was talk around the Ridgecrest that you, the two missionaries were missing. Dr. David Lockham wants to see you the first thing tomorrow morning before breakfast. 
at quarter to seven in his office. Now here we are, 30 years or 32 years old, <clears throat> after being pastors and all this. So uh, Bill and I go in there scratching our heads, oh, what are we going to do? Are they going to send us to jail or something like that? <laughs> we go in there and Dr. Lockett looks, looks at us and says, oh, Bill and George, he said, I understand that you cut all day classes yesterday at Ridgecrest. I said, uh, David, we did. We, we cut. Would you mind telling me why you cut them and what you did? We said, well, Dr. Lockard, you won't believe this, but we went and played golf at Black Mountain as a guest of the Reverend Dr. Billy Graham. <laughs> he said, can I go with you the next time? <laughs> so we became not only, we, we, we were the, sort of the victims of one time, right. and then we became the heroes of all the missionaries. Right. We played golf with Billy Graham. He prayed for you. Yeah. Yeah. He prayed for us. Yeah. That's, that's right. That's great. That's, that's amazing. Anyway, that's the story. Now, that's a great story. There's one more story I'd love to hear if we have time. You told this to us before, and it, it really kind of, to me, epitomizes a lot of your life. You, you kind of were breaking down barriers your entire life, uh, showing up to Iran first, of course, a pastor down in Kolowi uh, along the time of segregation and trying to integrate at that time. And you told a story about kind of your time at Kolowi uh, beginning to integrate, beginning to reach out to those college students. Talk to us a little bit about that, what that was like. You know, uh, I guess people would call me brash. I mean, having gone to Yale Divinity School, not many Southern Baptist pastors are going to do that. But I remember preaching a pulpit committee met me from Colorway over in Canton at the First Baptist Church. That's my wife's hometown, Canton, North Carolina. In those days, it was a booming community, booming church. So on a Sunday evening, I went and preached a trial sermon in the First Baptist Church of Canton in order to, for the pulpit committee to see if they want to call this young man to Colorway Baptist Church. After what I preached, we met in the back room, as you usually do, and they were telling me, well, Western Carolina is going to be getting uh, Cherokee Indians are coming over and rolling. We're going to have some African-Americans. They said blacks in those days. African-Americans will enroll, and they said, what's your position on this? Uh-oh. I said, uh-oh. Integration, segregation. And I'd prayed about this. And I said, well, I said, I tell you, if you call me as pastor of the Colorway Baptist Church, you call me with, with the knowledge that when I come to Colorway, I'm going to visit every single soul I can, both on the campus, up every holla of every mountain valley. And I, it makes no difference to me who they are, where they have come from. If that's the kind of pastor you want, that's the kind of pastor I will be. You already had that missionary spirit. And yeah. so they called me. Mm. Now, I was, we were hungry. Sure. Uh, Joanne and I read to me, we, we needed, you know, something to feed the kids with, you know. Yeah. But that, that was the calling. Mm. And so when I got there, the interesting thing was they brought in the athletic department. Football coach was my church. Athletic director was my church as members. Football coach became a deacon, was in church. But uh, the basketball coach was a Methodist. <laughs> the AD was a Baptist and the football coach was Baptist in that church. But the AD brought in this African-American of Asheville, this noted basketball player. I won't say his name, but the first Sunday he was there to play basketball in that first semester he came from Asheville. He was a, he was a prototype of Michael Jordan in those days. He could jump high. He could shoot long. He could, you know, uh, anyway, he, came in, he was in that church. And uh, so I said to him, I said, you know, this is wonderful. 
We had some African-American girls singing in the choir. So they were the beginning of the days of breaking down barriers. Not that we broke enough barriers, but we're beginning to break down barriers in those days. Yeah, so God used you had a missionary spirit then, you had a missionary spirit there. I think one of the most fantastic things about this is uh, you've talked about that you uh, spent time on this campus uh, when it was Wake Forest College, when it was Southeastern Seminary. Uh, one of the people you spent time with was uh, Dr. Sam James. And uh, the fact is that your, your library uh, in our building is actually in a room that's named after Sam James. We have a conference room named after Sam James and uh, George Braswell Library. And both of you guys were, were really pioneers in this area for, for missions and for, for ministry. And we want to just, just honor you. And so it's a great honor. I appreciate you sitting down talking to us. Anything else that you want to say? Any stories that we hadn't asked you when about? When you said Sam James, I, when we were students at the college, he was married to Rachel, who was a right. nurse. Right. Joanne and I were not married then, right. but uh, we would go on weekend revivals, the Baptist Student Union. Yeah. Big thing in those days was we had about 400 students active in the Baptist Student Union right. on the campus here. Right. And Sam and I would lead revival teams in South Carolina, Virginia, on weekends, you know, Friday, right. through Sunday night. So Sam and I knew each other those days. Yeah. Yeah. And then we got the doctor ministry right. together. He preached a revival in my church. Mm. Who could have put this together? Yeah, it's it's, to me, it's unexplainable. Right how you can have these relationships and then all of a sudden these old men come around and uh, you've got the room and the library intertwined with the lives of two people who have known each other since the 1950s, right. a half a century more. Only the Spirit of God right. somehow or another can bring this to power. So I'm thankful for this. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Again, this was the first uh, episode of our uh, second season. And we're so appreciative of Dr. George Braswell being with us today. And on behalf of Dr. Greg Mathias and myself, again, we want to wish you Happy New Year. Make sure you come back next week and, uh, and listen. Uh, pass this on to other people. And if this is the first time that you've listened to our podcast, hit the subscribe button. We'd like for you to be able to, uh, to catch us each week as we uh, publish The Scent Life. Let me pray for Dr. Braswell, pray for you, and uh, pray for the ministry uh, that God is doing around the world. So let's pray together as we close this first episode of the second season of The Scent Life. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the chance of being here and of knowing uh, heroes of the faith. We thank you for the way that you've stirred and worked in people's lives and the way that it can serve for us as an example and a model. And we pray that you would give us the courage and the opportunity to continue the marathon of your mission around the world. And for all that you do, we want to continue to give you credit. We thank you for the listeners. We pray your blessings on their life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.